From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. The vision of a CEO goes well beyond looking out more strategically into the market and where it's going. So your vision needs to be extended. Also, you're very good at executing, to a large extent, the corporate strategy and fitting into that instead of creating it. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. In the world of sales, we like to talk about hunters and farmers. Craig Harper, former CEO of Sharewell, definitely falls into the former camp. And after hearing today's episode, you'll understand why. Craig built a very successful career in sales before stepping into the C-suite. He makes a compelling argument for why sales leaders make great chief executives. He'll share his philosophy and talk about how it helped him to 10x the revenue while leading ServiceNow sales organization. Let's jump into the conversation. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Justin. Pleasure to be here. Craig, I don't think I have ever opened up a podcast by asking this question, but I need to ask you, is that actually a bear that is peering over your shoulder right now? That, Justin, that is a bear. <laughs> oh, first of all, does he have a name? <laughs> um, I know I haven't, I haven't named the bear. But you're not uh, on a first name basis. No. Well, there's got to be a story behind that bear. So I think you need to start off by telling us what, what what's the deal there? I grew up hunting. My my father would take me hunting. I've got s- several trophies from uh, from days of, of hunting gone by. And it, it be, took on a very practical application when I was in college as a typical starving college student. Um, I would go up hunting in, in Idaho along with my roommate who was from Idaho and, and, you know, successfully, uh, get some venison there. And between the potatoes on his farm and the venison that we would get from the successful hunt, we'd feed ourselves for the entire semester. So <laughs> I think maybe Craig, an easier way would have been to go get a job at the supermarket, but I <laughs> not respect as fun. the, <laughs> not I as fun, not as adventurous. All right. If anything happens, I'm coming over to your house. Deal. (laughs) Deal. Well, uh, so you've you've clearly got a very colorful background, and maybe that's where we should start. I wanted to talk a little bit about your grandfather. He was a pretty interesting guy, and it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit about who he was and what you learned from him. Yeah, that that is a great place to start. I I had the great fortune of growing up in close proximity to my grandparents, fantastic people. My grandfather... I got to know very, very well. We had at least a weekly dinner uh, together, and he was an amazing man. He was an inventor, an inventor, and and an innovator. Uh, ultimately, uh, his ideas, 42 of them were patented, and some of his most notable inventions were the steam iron and, and also the electric carving knife. With Thanksgiving coming up, you might be grateful for that. But uh, two that are that are easily in application today. But he was always an inspiration to me is always looking for a better and more effective way to get things done. So did did any of that 
ingenuity rub off on you in terms of you being a tinkerer as well? Oh, a- absolutely. And I, I think just walking around his house, you know, you would you would you would find things, for instance, uh, a lawnmower that was a push lawnmower that he had rigged up a skill saw and a set of pulleys and and belts that uh, that turn the blade and the wheels at the right appropriate RPM. And he'd be using that. And in fact, when I'd mow his lawn, that was the lawnmower that I used for for many years. Um, also, before garage door openers became ubiquitous. He created a, got an electric motor and created a garage door opener and uh, put a, a hidden switch along the driveway. So he and his wife could just hit that switch and, and open the garage door. Uh, just always, always thinking, always looking for a, a better way to do things. Um, he made me realize that, you know, the, the world is full of experts and problem identification. But it's a very small subset of those people that can build a plan to address the problem. And it's a very small subset of that small subset that can actually execute the plan to solve the problem. And that's that's who you need to be is that person. You know, growing up, we also had an automatic garage door opener. It was me. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, the way my mom activated the garage door opener, she'd reach back behind her and, and give me a smack and then I'd jump out of the car and open up the garage door. But I think I like your grandfather's approach a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. Well, yours, your, your mother's work too, sounds like. I think I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Hopefully, mom, hopefully you're not listening to that last point. I may have embellished it. All right, let's get, I got to get myself out of trouble here. We'll move on then. Okay. So you were also, you were not just inventing things back in the day. Uh, you were also an athlete. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes. Um, I, I grew up, I went to a high school called Upland High School. Uh, it, it, it had many athletes, famous athletes that graduated from Upland High School. But notably in my world, I played football and ran track. And Steve Scott, who's America's premier miler, also graduated from my same high school. Uh, he's... He holds the world record for running the most number of sub four minute miles of anyone in the world. So 137 sub four minute miles. Um, I, I was a what I would describe as I was a decent football defensive back, but I, I was a very talented miler in my day. And in fact, my freshman times in the mile as well as sophomore times in the mile were, were faster than Steve Scott's. And, uh, you know, like, like most things in life, you know, you, you learn lessons when you're a teenager, not in the moment, but, uh, but realize them kind of when later in life, when maybe you're in your twenties and you realize that your parents and coaches were right all along. Uh, I recall my coach sitting down with me once and saying, Hey, Craig, do you think you're going to get a college? scholarship for football. And it took me about a half second to think about what a division one wide receiver looked like, six, four blazing speed, amazing vertical leap, super athletic and say, no. And it took him about as long to agree with me. And he, he went on to say, look, if you commit yourself to track, quit football and, uh, and, and run cross country in the fall and, and focus on running, I can just about guarantee you a full ride scholarship to a great school. 
And in my 15 year old mind, I, you know, I, I thought about no lights, you know, no cheerleaders in the, in the stands when you're at a track meet versus, uh, versus a football game. And, uh, and I, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You know, it was a great, it was a great long-term lesson in do what you're great at, do what you're naturally good at. Um, I've kind of, you know, carried that through import through my life. It's, it's important to understand and recognize and learn where your talents lie and execute and, and leverage those talents and skills. I mean, we, t- you know, today we celebrate movies, feel good movies like Rudy, you know, where a guy's running around getting the stuff he knocked out of him for many, many years, ultimately to, to play, you know, two downs in a, in a football game. Um, great, great movie, but, you know, do you want to be the guy that's running around getting the stuff he knocked out of him for years? Focus on what you're good at, learn what you're good at, and and apply that to life. Life is going to give you plenty of obstacles to overcome, uh, even, even when you're focusing on your strengths. I learned a similar lesson. I actually came at it from a different angle than you did. I was one of the guys getting the stuff he knocked out of me, basically. It was back in business school. And I had enrolled in a really tough finance class. It was actually taught by Robert Merton, uh, who's a a famous uh, finance guy involved in inventing the Black-Scholes model, actually. And I remember coming home from class one day and talking to my wife. She was she'd already gotten her MBA from uh, University of Chicago. She is a finance person. And I said, I just I'm struggling in this class. And. I don't think I'm a finance person. And my wife said, well, I could have told you that like a year ago. She goes, so why are you taking your fi- the finance class? And I said, well, I do want to be a general manager someday. And general managers need to understand finance. And she said, yeah, I mean, you need to talk the language, but you don't need to do, do the work. There are people that love to do that. Pick the things that you're good at and then focus on those and then let the finance people focus on the finance. And, you know, for me, it gave me permission to, Stop doing the stuff that I knew I inherently didn't enjoy and wasn't good at. And I think I was before that inspired by the Rudy movie. Like you got to you got to take your looks. But after she said that, I said, you know, you're right. I'm going to focus on the things that I enjoy and that I'm really good at. And that was a that was a life changing moment for me. Yeah, I, I think if you apply that to really the context of a career in sales, you know, it has a lot of application there. I mean, people there's a lot of talk about the science of selling versus the art of selling, where the science of selling is really understanding and practicing process and the, the different criterias and disciplines that provide repeatable success around those, those different success processes. And then, of course, there's the art of selling, which I think is foundational, which is having those great interpersonal skills and being a good communicator and having the ability to rapidly build a relationship of trust and confidence with people. And, and, and that is fundamental to a career in sales. And from my perspective, if you're not really good at that, the art of selling, then maybe you should look at a different career path. You know, the science of selling, you're going to exercise, you're going to get better at, uh, but, but leverage your strengths, certainly in, in your choice of career. I think there's another dimension to that as well. When I when I ran a sales organization, I frequently had reps come to me. I can remember one in particular, Tom comes to me and he said, hey, Justin, I feel like it's time for me to become a sales manager. 
Now, Tom was one of the best sales guys at Oracle, just crushing his number quarter over quarter. He was making a lot of money too. And I said, Tom, tell me why you want to become a manager. And he said, well, I've been doing sales for years and it just seems like the natural next step. And I said, all right, Tom, if you're interested in doubling the amount of headaches that you've got in having the amount of money that you're making, then management is the job for you. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, well, I've never heard anybody put it that way. Now, of course, the thing about management, great managers love to coach people and they love to see people come along and get better. And so I find that if someone inherently has that desire and that's more important than perhaps controlling their own destiny, making a ton of money, that's the right reason to make the decision. But you shouldn't feel like you just need to do it because you've been doing the, the rep thing for a while. Justin, that's so interesting. I had the exact same conversation with a mentor of mine when I personally was about to make that transition from individual contributor to first line sales manager. And, and it was the same exact story. You, you, you're ready to make a lot less money, have, have a lot more headache, have a lot less flexibility in life. And his perspective, I, I really appreciated. It was, unless you can visualize yourself running worldwide sales or, or at least a significant geography like you know, North America or, or something of that scale, then don't do it because you don't want to be the individual who's stuck in mid-level management, having the money that you've made, having less flexibility, having all the personnel headaches associated with, with the role uh, without being able to progress forward. And, and I really appreciated that insight. And it, it really did make me think a lot about kind of the vision for my own career at the time. Well, since we're on the topic of sales, I'd love to hear about your first job in sales, how'd you land there and, and uh, what did it mean to you? Yeah, just graduating out of college, I, I was pursuing a career in sales. I knew that's, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I was attracted to it for a lot of the reasons around being able to determine your own monetary destiny, you know, as opposed to your, your classic salary that had milestone raises you know, here and there. Uh, being able to have more control over determining what you were going to be worth. And so I, I was pursuing that with uh, some larger companies, but I had given my resume out to several individuals, including some family friends. One of them was an, was an executive at General Dynamics in Southern California, who was, who was the recipient of a sales call from a young startup software company called Microframe. And the the salesperson and the CEO were calling on Al and he listened to their impressive pitch and at a point in time interrupted him, reached into his drawer, pulled out my resume, slid it across the table and said, hey, look, I, I really have enjoyed your pitch and, and I'm, I'm very interested. Um, while I'm thinking about it, here's the resume of a young man just getting out of college. I've known him his entire life. I give him an unqualified recommendation. You should do yourself a favor and inter at least interview him. Then said, please continue. And they went on to deliver the, you know, the rest of their, their sales pitch. And uh, I don't know what happened from there. I, in my mind, the, uh, the account executive went to the CEO and said, hey, look, I don't really care if you hire this kid or not, but at least bring him in for an interview. We need to get 
in on the good graces of Al. And uh, I ended up interviewing and 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 it, it, that ended up being my my first job out of college. I I was interested in the young startup company and and just being thrown into the deep end of the pool, you know, versus some of the 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 more the, the larger organizations that uh, that had a lot more bureaucracy associated with them. We've got a range of listeners, some more senior, some just starting off in their career. One of the things I want to highlight, though, that you just said is the importance of a reputation. You hadn't broken into sales yet, but clearly you made an impression on this individual who was willing to give you an unqualified recommendation. My experience is that the more senior you get, the smaller the world gets and the more people know each other. That reputation that you carry with you at the end of the day is really all you've got. And it's a function of all the small micro decisions that you've made over the years. That's so true. I mean, your 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 personal stock, you know, trades higher or lower based based upon your performance and and how you know how how you treat other people. There's a lot that goes into it, but it's it's a great, great way to think about things. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. So you you progressed through the ranks, landed in BMC, great company. We've talked to a number of folks from BMC, and you finally get your big break. You're moving into management. Uh, You get the nod. Uh, tell me a little bit about those first days or, or weeks uh, in management. Yeah, well, I, I started at, at BMC initially as an individual contributor and had the opportunity ultimately to build. It. Well, I was one of the first salespeople selling into the federal government for BMC, which, by the way, is a is a is a tough gig. If you're thinking about being the first person in selling to the government, uh, know what you're getting into. Usually. Either you run out of cash or the company runs out of patience. It's not a, it's not a market that moves really fast in the beginning, but somehow I survived through that and, and ended up having the opportunity, you know, as, as we grew the business and as we needed a manager, became a manager and then grew into, uh, ultimately become vice president of public sector and, and built what was the fastest growing, most profitable business division of of BMC at the time and just had a, a great experience, but then had this opportunity to move into run North America, which at the time was a billion dollar organization. And I was I was very, very excited about that. I actually want to make a point here that I that I think is is important because have, having built public sector, the CEO at the time, Bob Beecham and the board I'm sure that they loved this revenue stream that was coming from public sector. And I, you know, I, I wanted to move my career beyond selling to government. I was living in DC at the time. I didn't want to live in DC forever. And I didn't intend to be the long-term public sector guy. And it became very apparent to me at a point in time that they saw my move outside of public sector as risk. You know, risk to uh, to this strong business, and so having a, a succession plan, a very purposeful succession plan, 
uh, became critical to my ability to uh, to grow within the business and uh, move to that next level. So I, I focused very much on that and uh, very purposefully got a lot of exposure for the individual that uh, that I had been grooming for my replacement in that role. Got him a lot of exposure with the CEO and with other key executives. And it wasn't until that happened that I, I was able to move on and uh, in my mind and become promoted into uh, into the head of North America, which the timing of that became interesting. As I was promoted to run North America, there were three weeks left in a quarter. And as it turns out, it was just a, a dismal quarter. So I'm, I'm just newly promoted. And one of my first meetings with the CEO included the CFO and the COO and, and my boss, the VP of Worldwide Sales, all in the CEO's conference room where I'm getting raked over the coals for the performance of the quarter. And, and so I'm doing my best to represent the quarter and, and the whys of why it was what it was and, and the reasons behind the, the poor performance. And at several points in time, my manager, the head of worldwide sales, attempted to insert himself and say, hey, by the way, that you, know, you realize this wasn't Craig's quarter. But every time he attempted to insert himself, he was, he was, he was immediately shut down. And those words, this wasn't my quarter, were never going to come out of my mouth. But I, I ended up leaving that meeting thinking to myself, you probably only get one of those meetings. I'm just a few weeks into my tenure in this new role that I'm excited about, and I've already had mine. And I, I did the quick mental math while I was leaving uh, Bob's office thinking, okay, do the math. I've been here for so long. Heads of North America, how many have there been? Well, it turned out to be about an 18-month life expectancy, and there, there wasn't a lot of precedence for moving upward from the role. So I thought, I don't want to be the shortest lived head of North America. I, I had created my typical 30, 60, 90 day plan. And, and what that experience did is it just compressed my plan over a 90 day period into about a 10 day plan. It, it sent me down the hall to the head of HR to say, hey, look, I've got some personnel changes to make. I, I know that we've got a process uh, surrounding the moves that I want to make, but I'm not going to follow the process and, and I'm okay if I'm fired for not following the process, but I'm not going to be fired for not making the changes that I know need to be made. I'm giving you the opportunity to buy a, a stack of plane tickets and follow me around the country and kind of sweep up after the, well, I, I won't say mess, but the changes that I'm about to make. And we agreed to do that. And, and that sense of urgency and that it built within me in retrospect at the time, I thought this is just a terrible thing that's happened to me. I mean, how did, how did I you know, fall into this? And in retrospect, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, because that sense of urgency that it created continued to follow me throughout my career because I learned so much through it. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, I'm so impressed that in order to get that promotion, not only did you have to prove yourself, you had to groom your successor. And you were thinking long term, not only about who is this person, but helping them to establish a rapport and a reputation. Uh, I, I was just talking to Carlos De La Torre, who's the CRO over at 
at Trip Actions. I've worked with And one of the things, so he said, a seasoned leader thinks in three dimensions. They're thinking about the present, but they're thinking about the future. And the most important thing you can consider is what are your needs going to be from a personnel perspective a couple quarters out? And the people that get into trouble are the ones that are myopically thinking about today. And, you know, your example of who's my successor and let me get that person teed up is a beautiful example of how when you do that, it opens up new doors. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Carlos is 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 correct. I mean, any anyone who's run a significant sales organization, the last thing you want to do is be stepping into uh, your next fiscal year with a new growth expectation not having made the hires and built the organization to support that growth plan. So you, you've always got to be ahead of the game. Yeah. So the other thing that impresses me, you're in a really tough spot. I mean, you're standing there two weeks into the job, but you're not making excuses for yourself. I can't help but think that even going back to your grandfather saying, whatever you've got, you can make it work. Or back in college, you know, we're going to put food on the table. Uh, we're going to go out and make it happen. <laughs> One way or another. And, and, and it just instilled the confidence in you to be able to stand up and say, I'm going to take this and I'm going to figure it out. That, that's a pretty unique perspective you were able to assume in, in a high pressure situation. I, I think you're characterizing it correctly, but I, I, think, I, I think it does come from just your life's experiences, you know, in, in kind of a, an excuse of, a world of no excuses where I know I, I was raised by parents who, uh, who are, who are amazing. My father was a police officer and he really didn't accept a lot of excuses when I was growing up. So <laughs> far for the course. So the other question I wanted to ask you, you, you make this decision, you got to move fast and you are very quickly deciding who gets to stay on the team and who needs to go. How were you able to be that decisive about the personnel that were going to be on your team? Well, that's an easy one. Uh, this, this was a battlefield promotion. And in a battlefield promotion, I, I'd been working with my now direct reports for a number of years. So I didn't have to go through a long assessment of strengths and weaknesses and skill sets. I, I knew these people. I'd been working with them shoulder to shoulder for for a, a long time, I, I knew what their capabilities were and, and their levels of commitment and knew that some change had to be made. And so in that battlefield promotion where one day you're working alongside your peers and then the next day you're their leader, there's, there's a lot of challenges that come with that. But I guess one of the benefits is you are in a position to act very, very quickly because you, 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 you can skip the whole assessment uh, period that you need to go through. So another reason to watch your reputation, the person standing next to you may be your boss at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, hopefully you're, you're promoted for the right reasons. So, that, you know, clearly your performance has, has outpaced your peers. And, and so there's, there's, not a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of questions around, around that. But what I also found was don't try to be the person that you're replacing. You really need to focus on your own leadership style, being yourself, you know, after being promoted for the right reasons, you just, you need to come up with your new initiatives and move very, very quickly. I found that, that speed was 
my friend and that rolling out my initiatives, which at this point in time, the organization was struggling. I mean, it was struggling not only to make and hit its revenue targets and growth plans, but just fundamentally struggling to hit its own forecast, to meet its own commitments. And, and so boiling it down to fundamentals, as in you know, pipeline development and creating initiatives around pipeline development, uh, and then you know, also ensuring that you have enough opportunities to chase, but secondarily ensuring that you've got the quality salespeople in order to advance those opportunities from stage, sales stage to sales stage and ultimately close the deal. So early initiatives in that scenario you know, became around pipeline generation and also uh, ensuring that we had the right hiring, hiring profile and models and processes around that as, as well as enablement. And BMC software you know, was a great environment for that. They, they were very good at, at supporting sales enablement and investing in their people. And I think that, you know, ultimately that, that is one of the reasons, one of the, the ingredients in the recipe that got us clearly back to growth and success. Enablement is an oft overlooked function, but if you get it right, it pays dividends uh, in spades. Um, I was having a great conversation with Tom, Tom Levy, who's over at uh, Datadog, and he talked about the first thing he did when he came in is he said, went to the CEO and said, I want to build a sales enablement team. It's going to pay dividends, but over the next several years. So I want to set expectations. And as a result of that, um, you know, he was able to lean in and, and really see some pretty dramatic um, upside from it. Yeah. Yeah. I have... One other observation as I think about that, that experience around making rapid moves. At, at that point in time, BMC was experiencing unprecedented voluntary attrition. And, and we all know when you're experiencing voluntary, attri voluntary attrition, you're, you're losing your best talent because your best talent always has lots of options where your underperformers, you generally have to blast out with dynamite you know, because they're they're going to stick around as long as you're willing to pay them. But when I made those initial rapid moves after uh, being promoted into running North America, voluntary attrition basically dried up and went away. And I think people looked around and said, hey, wait a minute. But this, these are the changes that have needed to, be, to have been made. This could get interesting. I'm going to stick around and see what happens. There's a great book I recommend to everybody who's starting a new job. It's called The First 90 Days. And one of the points that the book makes is you need to assess the situation of the business. You can either have a burning platform or you can have a high flyer. The, the moves are very different depending on the situation. You walked into a burning platform and did exactly the right thing. You need to make decisive moves and you need to make, need to make them quickly. And if you don't do that, you're going to be out of a job. On the flip side, if you've got a high flyer, things are really humming. You want to be a little more circumspect about the bold decisions that you're making and make absolutely sure it's going to be incremental to the success the business is already enjoying. Completely agree with that. At this point, your philosophy from a sales leadership perspective is coming together. You're, you're codifying the playbook. You go to service now. And 
ServiceNow was another big success for you. Can you talk a little bit about where the company was when you joined, where it was when you left, and what happened in between? Yeah, I, I sent a blind email to uh, the then founder and CEO, Fred Luddy of ServiceNow, introducing myself. And I, I didn't know a soul at ServiceNow. I sent him a, a blind email. I was very impressed with what they were doing and the, the innovation that they were creating. And based upon that email, we got together and, and the rest, as they say, was history. But when, when I joined ServiceNow, I, it's, it's easy when you, th- <laughs> when you think about ServiceNow and their, their tremendous success and their $100 billion market cap today, it, it's easy to think, well, hey, they were always successful from the, the very beginning. But that isn't necessarily true. Um, when, when I joined, they had actually missed the revenue plan the year before I joined. And I, I joined at the very tail end of Q3 in our fiscal year. They had missed two of those three quarters. And, and, and what I found was basically we had about, at the time, about a dozen salespeople that were all running around the country selling fantastic technology, primarily on price. And and leaning very hard on on the technology to to carry the day and, and get the deal done, but we were we were not receiving the value uh, for the the great uh, problems that we were solving and and the the great achievements that our customers were realizing and the value that they were realizing from the ServiceNow platform and. We we had no platform for scale or repeatable success, so it was in in a way it was kind of a blank slate, but very very exciting. Particularly, you know, given the strength of of technology, it it was an amazing company to uh, to to be associated with there. So the way I thought about it was, you know, initially focusing on on our differentiation. And you know, what made us unique? And fortunately, there was plenty of that. You know, we had a highly differentiated product and offering. Uh, we, we were able to identify that differentiation and very importantly, monetize that, that differentiation and determine the measurable difference that, uh, that we were delivering for our customers. And just from that, from that foundation, built out just a number of different sales tools uh, along with sales process that was built on on how most effectively to uh, to get a, a deal done in the way that our customers were consuming the software and building out a proof of value templates to help control the criteria decision criteria of the organization or whether it was TCO ROI documentation to uh, to help prove out the value of what we're doing and, and having uh, CFO business cases that we would deliver or security documentation, which in, in those days of early software as a service became a, a critical hurdle that we needed to clear very early, early on because learn lessons learned the hard way. You, know, you get to the end of a sales cycle and then find out, oh, here's the chief security officer who, who then gives you the 140 page document questionnaire to fill out. We wanted to head that off. I mean, we, we, we had a, a few of those surprises at the end of a sales cycle. And, and so we pushed that forward uh, to address it with our own security documentation, hope, hope, 
hoping to avoid the the chief security officer's questionnaire that probably didn't really apply to us anyway. But, you know, also a lot of competitive information. All of this designed to really do the homework for the champion that we would create or champions that we would create within the account. The, the end result is compressing the sales cycle, locking out competition. And uh, we, we, we got to the point where it became math. I mean, we eventually got to the point where you would hire a salesperson, they had a predictable ramp, they had a predictable outcome. So then it just became high growth and velocity. How fast could we hire quality salespeople to get out in the field to support the tremendous growth that we were achieving. And when I joined ServiceNow, we were, we were roughly $15 million in recurring revenue. Three years later, we were $200 million in recurring revenue, which, uh, which was pretty phenomenal. There's this concept called the repeatable sales motion that companies need to be able to define. But it's really important to recognize the state that the company is in. Early stage companies haven't figured that out yet. And in many cases, if they're trying to ramp sales, bring more salespeople on before they figure that out, they implode because the sales productivity doesn't justify the hires. Being able to define the repeatable sales motion, as you said, it then becomes a math game because once you know you can bring someone in, make them productive, you just keep adding people to the equation and that's where you see the revenue grow. That's yeah, that's it. And it's that's an interesting point, Justin, because there, there was there was a there was a stage of the company where I felt like we had clearly reached that kind of repeatable point where uh, we had that success, we had the predictable model, we could just stomp on the gas and accelerate, and the CFO wasn't convinced. So there was a, a lot of arm wrestling between he and I, you know, <laughs> over you know, over when we were going to really, really uncork things because he was, uh, he was pretty protective of the, uh, the, the, the cash flow that we had. Sure. Now. Well, when do you know if you've reached that state? You get it to the point where, you know, first of all, you've got uh, tremendous acceptance in the marketplace where, interestingly enough, at ServiceNow, one of our early industry verticals that we were wildly successful in was finance, which is kind of odd for a typical startup, unless you're designed around your products designed around finance. But banking and finance, we, we, we hit very early and, and then began to knock down bellwether accounts in different industry verticals. So then it was a, a major retailer and then we'd be in the insurance business over here. And we just started to build a marketplace momentum that was was very measurable uh, around a broad acceptance of of our technology. Uh, also, just the percentage of salespeople that were that were making or exceeding plan. I mean, yeah. typically you're trying to to get that you know around. Uh, healthy, you know, a, a healthy scenario, maybe high 60, 70%. Um, everyone was making their, their plan <laughs> at this period of time. It was so obvious in this scenario is so obvious to me that we were just ready to, to just launch and take off. Yeah. Those are the green light indicators, percent of reps making plan, 
average revenue per rep, ramp times. When you start to see all of those lights go green, you got to go start hiring because yeah. you got something special. Yeah. And it's it, it became it became an exercise in compressing that ramp time to revenue and then increasing our our ASP, which uh, all metrics were going the right direction. Yep. And if you're not seeing that, you've got to really double down on your product marketing, assessing the product market fit, really trying to re-engineer the sales process in order to set yourself up for success in the long term. Absolutely. So uh, wealth of experience there from a sales perspective, you actually, though, made the transition then into the C-suite as the CEO. I'd love to get your perspective on the advantages that a CEO has coming from a sales background and also some of the things that become challenges if you're coming from that background. So it's, it's a great question. I, I, I think that the, the CRO to CEO is a fairly common path. Uh, you have a, you have a lot of technical founders out there, but uh, but there's there's a there's a kind of a kind of a well worn path of CRO to to CEO, and I think for a lot of good reasons. I mean the the pros are pretty obvious. I mean you're if, if you've been a successful CRO, you're you know you're generally an execution machine. You know you're very metrics driven. You're very good at measuring results. You're very comfortable with that. You're you're good at customer and also prospect engagement uh you you're generally a risk taker which in many cases is good you know you're you've you're you're good and capable at coaching and developing people but you know through forecasting processes and things you you have a very realistic opt- optimism that that I would describe Th- those are all very positive attributes that you carry forward with you into that transition into a CEO role so some of the potential blind spots that I see is, you know, even even as you reference Carlos and having that vision out into the future to make sure that you weren't caught off guard, the vision of a CEO goes well beyond looking out more strategically into the market and and where it's going. So your your vision, first of all, around strategy needs to be extended you know beyond what you would naturally do as as a CRO. Also, as I said, you're an execution machine, but you're very good at executing to a large extent the corporate strategy and fitting into that in, instead of creating it. So, you know, you you've you've got to, you know, ensure that you're prepared to uh, to to look further out, to have that vision, to be able to to set that and then, you know, have have others also fill into that. You also, CROs are kind of notorious spenders and uh, you, you've, got, you've got to be good with cash. And, <laughs> and you know, so those, are, those are some of the things. I mean, I, I learned kind of the hard way that when, when you transition into a CEO role, you can't treat everyone like you treated salespeople. Salespeople, they they by choice signed up to a role where they there's a lot there's high visibility there's a lot of accountability associated with it you you knew that you were signing up for a career that had a lot of rejection associated with it and so you develop a, a thick skin 
And so you talk to salespeople and, and treat them in a, in a certain way often that doesn't necessarily translate well to other people that didn't sign up for that, that same kind of career path. And I actually had a few, uh, there's no crying in baseball moments uh, in, uh, in, in the early days of that, that transition to, to CEO and, and had to uh, figure out in some cases ways to be maybe a little more diplomatic in, in communicating to others. The, I think that last point is an important one. The mix of people that you have in a company is, is diverse and not to stereotype, but I think you're going to have a greater concentration in sales of extroverts, a greater concentration of, of individuals that are used to receiving direct feedback. And as you said, rejection and the way that you interact with that kind of a person is very different than maybe how you interact with an introvert that may not be as used to the direct conversations. And therefore, I think the great CEOs are able to adapt depending on the audience they're talking to. Yeah, it's 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 a role that requires a lot of nimbleness yeah. in, in the way that you do react to others. There's, you know, there's a, another piece of advice that I would give to someone who's considering that transition uh, is is make sure that you're you have a board that is number one aligned and number two aligned to your objectives that where where you think the company needs to go and where you want to take that that company. A lot of people kind of naively look at an org chart and see that box at the top and say, "Oh wow, I want to be that individual because they don't have a boss." And nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, it's you you go from having a boss to having several with different investors. Typically, in most organizations today, you've got numerous different investors that may have different time horizons in their investment, different priorities, and uh, and different initiatives that they want to drive. And and that that can be very very complex and very difficult to navigate critically important that you have alignment at the the board level and even if there's if there's founders in, that are still involved in the in the company that can also add another layer of complexity critical for your personal success that you have alignment across the board for what you want to get done and you know particularly in scenarios where there's significant change that needs to occur and let's face it, in most scenarios, if you're coming in and replacing a CEO, um, significant change needs to occur. <laughs> That's by definition. And where you're making dramatic cultural change, it's, it's very, very important that you have alignment around what you need to do in order to be successful. Otherwise, I suggest that you uh, look for something else to do. Look for a different CEO role. Well, Craig, in the minutes that we have remaining, I did want to talk about a very important pursuit that you're engaged in currently. It's your work with nonprofits. One organization in particular is CASA. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization and how your experience in the private sector has benefited the work that you're doing for the nonprofit organization? Yeah, Justin, thanks for teeing that one up. I, I've always thought that it's very important to give back and give back to one's community I know there have been points in time in my career where I thought I was just too busy for it. And I've kind of re really 
kind of told myself, okay, well, you know, you know you're going to come back around to that and figure out a, a way to do it. But for now, you're just going to have to take solace in the fact that you're building a company, employing a lot of people and doing a lot of good for their families. And, and, and that there's a lot of truth to that. But, but I've really come to the conclusion that you just have to find the time. You know, you, you have to make time to, to give back and to serve your community and, and make it a priority. Uh, in the case of CASA, I actually, the way that I came across CASA, I had heard of it from, through some friends that were CASAs themselves. CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. And so if you are a CASA, you are appointed by the court to a child who has been removed from their parents for abuse and neglect and, and is typically in the foster care program. This organization really spoke to me. I always considered myself so fortunate that I had felt like I'd won the birth lottery and, and not because I was raised with a lot of stuff, you know, that has nothing to do with stuff. I was raised with what matters most in life. I have fantastic parents and really can't imagine growing up. I mean, it was tough enough with great parents. If, if you did not have that, and in fact, you know, we're on the negative side of that ledger, then things must be very, very difficult. And, and so I was very attracted to their mission in making a difference in the first place. Now, I actually entered a fitness contest, interestingly enough, and uh, it was a fitness contest for charity. And I did some research and I decided my benefactor was going to be CASA. I entered the fitness contest thinking I was going to win, of course. But, but then <laughs> I, what I didn't think was I was going to become a CASA myself and, and that you know, this, this would uh, become a big personal initiative for me. I, I did a lot of fundraising through uh, my fitness contest. And uh, have what was the fitness on. contest, by the way? Well, the fitness contest, I was competing against a number of people that uh, mostly are half my age, but uh, it it had to do with uh, kind of a, a your your personal transformation. It, it, there were judges involved, and a lot of it had to do with uh, how good you looked. You know, could 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 this sixty year old support a six pack? <laughs> After all these years. And, all right. Uh, all right. <laughs> I like to win and uh, I finished second. So I'm very, very disappointed. You're in, bitter. Uh, You're in, bitter. In, I am very bitter. <laughs> let's face it. But uh, but it was a, a great experience and getting to know CASA very, very well. The people that are listening to this podcast right now, by definition, you know, are people that are out there improving themselves. You know, they're high achievers. They're the type of individuals that these not-for-profits and great organizations that are making such a difference for people that uh, are less fortunate or need our help in some way. And, and I, I highly recommend getting involved. I guarantee you it will make you happier in your life. Great advice. Well, Craig, one final question. As you look across the long arc of your life and your career, what is the one thing that you feel has made the most difference? I would have to go back to my parents and, and that just the way that, uh, that they raised me to work hard, to respect other people's property, all those fundamental things. You know, I'll never forget. So my dad was a police officer. Police officers are generally friends with firefighters. 
firefighters work this two days on, three days off uh, work schedule. And many of them have construction companies on the side because of their work schedule. And, and my dad's friends had these construction companies. And, and so by the time I was about 12 years old, I was pouring concrete for one of these firefighters and on weekends. And, and I'll never forget coming home after a Saturday of, of pouring pool decks and uh, being dropped off at the house where uh, my dad's friend, you know, took me up to the, to the door, rang the door. My dad answered the door. The individual I'd been working with during the day said, Hey, you know, Craig can work with me anytime. I mean, he runs circles around all my other employees. And my dad just looked at him and said, yeah, of course he does. He's my son. And having that foundation of hard work and commitment to whatever, you know, you're, you're deciding that you're going to pursue has followed me throughout my life. So hard to get around that one. Well, Craig, thank you so much for all of your words of advice and for the stories that you shared. Thank you, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.